Welcome to Misunderstandings of the Mind podcast, the space where we explore common misunderstandings of how life works, allowing us to gain new perspectives on health, wealth, relationships, and much more. Life doesn't have to be hard work. It can be a flowing collection of experiences if we learn some simple truths about how our experience is created. Through this understanding, we realize that at a fundamental level, we are all already whole and perfect. Hi everyone. Um, I said I'd record some some audio to go before this podcast with Rupert, you know, because I've sat on it for a couple of years and I've really never even... I listened to it once and that wasn't until about six months after I did it because... Um, digging into the non-dual understanding for me which uh, has been going on for quite a few years you know many videos and so on before I started attending retreats over the last couple of years Um, and this was recorded I think the second retreat that I went to but every time I went to a, a retreat a real vulnerable part of me you know if you're listening through the lens of IFS you know a, a real vulnerable part of me kind of would show up to these retreats and uh my ego you know wants to appear really well and kind of this spiritual teacher therapist you know that um knows all sorts of stuff about everything you know and um so i recorded this podcast i think on the second day of the retreat and i felt so shit afterwards it was like oh my god that was disastrous you know it was kind of like the portrayed myself the the i that i think i am ironically in such a ridiculously um, uneducated, pathetic way, you know, nobody has more judgment of us than we have of ourselves, right? And this is a, this is why I'm sh- sharing this because I, I find it quite funny that I had this thing for so long, you know. And I listened to it today, and I, I, I did edit some bits out and cut some bits out, particularly near the start because I felt so off, you know. And um, it was. But like quite a lot of it was really good. I think the conversation was so helpful to other people. And it was like, when it kept coming back, it was like this little niggling thought, Jason, you just don't know who this is going to help. You know, who's going to be useful for, who's it going to be helpful for. And that kept niggling away at me for a while until the end. I thought, okay, now I'm going to sit down and like have a listen to this and see. And there's so many insights in there. I made a list of them underneath the podcast or wherever you found this in the Facebook post. But um, I don't mind outing myself these days, you know. And um seems quite funny that I had that idea, that belief that this would not be a good recording because of how I was feeling in that moment, you know, particularly vulnerable and kind of... Uh, yeah, I was, I was struggling with myself, you know, at that time, <laughs> which is quite funny when I listen back to it, to myself talking now and thinking about the experience, but yep. So here you go. I will start the, um, the episode now and hope it's useful. Thank you. Hi, Rupert. Welcome to Misunderstandings of the Mind podcast. Hi, Jason. Nice to, nice to see you. Thank you for joining me to do this. It's a, it's a pleasure. I've thought about it for a long time. Okay. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I did write down some questions, but I prefer not to sort of read them Perfect. out and stuff. You know? Perfect, and, um, yeah. I, I feel like we get, um, I, 
you know, and the, the people that I'm around get so caught up in the right way of sharing the understanding that they miss the process, they miss the point of it, you know, and I feel like in the, um, one of the meetings yesterday, somebody said to you, you know, what do we do here? You know, and I thought it was beautiful what you said, and you said that, I don't know, but it melts my heart every time, you know, and I thought we could start there because it's really about the purpose of this podcast is the same, you know, to help people that are suffering to have a better experience of life, you know, from when they've, when they've spent a long time caught up in themselves or in some sort of suffering or mental health condition or whatever they've been told is wrong with them, you know, it's like that, or the whole process of what I do and what this podcast is about is really helping people to have a better experience of life, you know, so that really touched me when you said that, you know, and, um, this podcast has been uh, people that have inspired and been teachers and mentors of mine and in the, in the spiritual path or understandings that I've come through, you know, before I found my way here. And um, I think that, you know, like the way, the way I came here was kind of originally to, to this thing was that I was a psychotherapist and um, before that I'd suffered with addiction for many years. Um, going back even further, I lost my dad as a child and then I went into the psychiatric system as a young boy. I was medicated at nine years old, put on medication and that was where I was then thrown into the system, put on antidepressants and um, developed eating disorders and addictions. I got involved in crime and jails and psychiatric um, removal from society, you know, basically before I found recovery in the traditional sense and then psychotherapy as a client and as a practitioner um but i always felt i was searching for something it never it never left me the seeking the searching you yeah. know and, until i had some um spiritual i'd been in tw i'd been in 12 steps for 22 years you know at that point i'd been a psychotherapist for a long time i'd been working with people but it still it felt like we could fumble around in the dark together, but it didn't really feel like any of us knew where the light switch was, you know, um, yes. in my practice with people. People could come for a long time and I could sit and be present with people, but I didn't really know where joy or happiness or contentment was myself. So I'd love to ask a couple of things about thought and reality. As I said, you know, it's it was my initial introduction to the spiritual um, path if you want for want of a better word you know it's like that all reality is made of thought you know and that helped me to see that I wasn't my story you know it helped me to see that um, I'd made up this idea of myself and yes. that I was suffering okay but just just to be clear Jason all, all reality is not made of thought this is the question yeah, yeah this is yeah. what I would like no, to no, talk th about thoughts yeah. are, if all reality was made of thought Jason and when you stopped thinking reality would come to an end is that your experience that between two thoughts that reality comes to an end of course not so what is that then what's the experience in between thought because it seems that words don't really work to kind of try and once you start trying to apply words to that it runs out of value to me because I don't think people can 
guess, or, or say something about it. You know, it's spacious or it's there's nothingness there. But like, how, how can anyone say that there's a space between thoughts even? Well, if there were, if there were, there were no gaps between thoughts, um, there would be, it would only be possible to have one thought. There wouldn't be anything that separated one thought from another. The fact that there's a gap between those two sofas enables there to be two, two sofas. There was no gap between those two sofas. There'd be one sofa. There was no gap between thoughts. There'd only be, ever be one thought. And if there were no gap between words, there'd only ever be one word. In other words, without gaps, thoughts would not be possible. So there are, by definition, gaps between words and thoughts. That's what enables us to have numerous thoughts, because each thought is broken up into component parts. Otherwise, it would just be one word or, or, or one letter. It would not be possible. If there were no gaps between the, the notes in a piece of music, there'd be no music. So... There, there are plenty of times when we're, we're still having, exp we're still perceiving, but without thinking. Just think, thinking. I think our thoughts are like the subtitles on on the, on the movie of of life. Sometimes the subtitles are on, sometimes they're not. But the movie goes on. So there's much. All, all I'm trying to say is there's much more to reality than thoughts, and the purpose of thoughts is not to describe reality even from a, um, a conventional reductionist, materialist point of view, this sofa, when analysed, you go, you, you go deeply into the sofa, you go deeper and deeper and deeper into it. You, you don't find the sofa there. So the sofa is not really a description of, of what is really there. It's just a, a convenient narrative that enables us to refer to the sofa. Well, Jason, come, come and sit down on the sofa. We, we need language to be able to do that. The word sofa is not supposed to be um, an accurate description of reality. Words cannot accurately describe reality. But this doesn't mean that words are redundant. No, they, they, they have their purpose um, to provisionally, uh, to enable us to provisionally refer to, to, to things for, 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 for practical purposes. And in relation to the non-dual understanding, likewise, words are purpose of the words is not to describe reality; it is to evoke reality. It's not possible, for instance, to describe consciousness with words, but it is possible to say certain things that uh, bring about a relaxation of the focus of our attention from the objective content of experience, and as a result enable us to make touch with the background of pure consciousness, like what happened for you in L.A. on that grassy slope. Your attention relaxed and the background of peace became available. Well, on that occasion, you didn't need any words. It was something about the sunny day and the green slope and mm -hmm. that, that conspired to, 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 to affect this relaxation of your mind. But it's also possible with words to bring about this, uh, this pause in the, in the stream of thinking. For instance, with a question such as, uh, am I aware, or what is it that is aware of your experience? The, the, these words don't try to define consciousness or our true nature, but they do bring about, they do precipitate a process that enables us to taste 
our true or glimpse our true nature. So they're effective not as descriptions but as um, evocations, and as such they are valid. That, that's why the teaching is 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 given in words. It's not not the only form of teaching, but it's a, it's, it's a valid one. So just because words are not accurate, no words are accurate. Remember Cezanne, all art tells a lie, but it points to the truth. Zen master said said the same thing. Uh, If I speak, I tell a lie. But if I don't speak, I'm a coward. So the Zen master realized everything he said is untrue. Everything you've heard me say this week is untrue. But hopefully it points to the truth. Yeah. One of the things you said this week, actually, that I picked up on was, and tell me if I'm wrong, but you said that thoughts and perceptions are the thing that take us away from our true nature, the only two things that take us away from our true nature. I'm sure I heard you say that. Uh, Yes. To to begin with, um, thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions take us away from our true nature in the sense that we give our, we awareness, give our attention exclusively to thoughts, feelings and so on. And as a result, we overlook ourself, we forget ourself. Mm. It's like the actor John Smith giving his attention so exclusively to King Lear, the part he plays, that he forgets that he's John Smith. It's King Lear's thoughts, feelings, actions and relationships that have caused King Lear, that have caused John Smith to forget that he is John Smith. So as a result of that, John Smith has to trace his way back through all the layers of experience and come back to this recognition, I am John Smith. Then he can then go back to the character, King Lear, and he can have King Lear's thoughts and feelings, he can engage in King Lear's actions and relationships without losing touch with his knowledge of himself as John Smith. So it's not thoughts and feelings that they don't, by definition, take us away from our true nature. In other words, it's quite possible to have thoughts and perceptions and remain in touch with our true nature. So so they have no inherent power to take us away from our true nature. It is we who invest them with that power. Yeah, I feel like that's what I... That's what most of humanity are doing. We're yes. lost in that, that yes. idea of themselves, like as I was. That's what I yes. saw. Yes, it, it's true. M- most people are, are uh, lost in and identified with the content of their experience. And as a result, they, they overlook the, their own nature or their own being. And thus they lose touch with the peace that is its nature. And in fact, much of what much of what constitutes most people's activities in life most people are engaged in activities like you used to be for the sole purpose of bringing their mind to an end Mm. when we have a desire for an object the the, the state of desire that we are in before we acquire the object is by definition a state of agitation a state of seeking so there's no peace there but when we get the object, the, the desire by definition comes to an end because we've got what we desired. So there's no more desire, there's no more seeking, there's no more agitation of the mind. And what happens? We experience happiness. Not the happiness that was caused by the object. The happiness that was there all the time but was veiled by our seeking. So the object doesn't produce the happiness, it brings the seeking to an end. And then the happiness was already there in the background shines and most people are involved 
for most of their life in seeking objects and engaging in activities, in activities with the sole purpose of bringing the seeking mind to an end. So all that we do here is we go directly to our true nature of peace and happiness. We don't go via an object. Yeah, I tell a funny story about that with most people that I work with with addictions. I ask them to notice when do they feel better, you know, like in the process of deciding to do something or use something or, in, or um, get caught up in a process. And almost everyone will say that as they made the decision to do something, they already felt better before they actually took the substance or engaged in the act. Yes, they, as they made the decision to... to to engage in the act. They already feel a bit better because the promise of fulfillment starts. Mm. But once they think, okay, I'm going to have X or, or do Y, they know that when they have X or achieve Y, they'll find peace. So even the decision to go there brings a measure of peace and then they get the full peace when they, when they get the object. Mm. But just one thing to say, Jason, in your case, with people with them strong addictions, it's very unlikely that what we do here, the direct path, will be sufficient. Because the, the, um, the habit in the body is so strong that um, even if people were to um, briefly, even if the acquisition of the object or the substance or the activity were to bring their mind to an end and they were to experience their true nature of peace, the habit of going for the object is so strong that it will very quickly pull them back out again. And it's unlikely that uh, just going back repeatedly to your true nature will be enough to break that habit, because the habit is so strong. So sometimes uh, some intermediary step is necessary to, to break that physical habit. Yeah, if somebody's got a medical, requires a medical removal of society or a detox or something like that, for sure, they are always, I always suggest that they're going to require some sort of further residential type help or to be removed from whatever it is they're doing before they get involved in that, anything else. That that's an extreme case, or yeah. it could be um, a less extreme case. Let's say, um, let's say someone had this very strong um, porn addiction that, that that you mentioned earlier. So when, when you feel that impulse, you pause, you ask, her, what is it that is aware of this experience? You go back to your true nature, but the pull, the force of habit is going to be so strong that it's unlikely that just going back to your true nature is going to be strong enough to weaken that habit. So that's where you might suggest an intermediary practice, like going for a run. Distraction. It, well, it's more than just a distraction. It's a distraction, but it's all that pent-up energy that wants to go in the direction of the, mm -hmm. the, of the porn clip is now being directed in a physical direction. And, when you're, and, and, and also when you're, when you're going for a run or doing a workout, it involves pretty much all of your attention because it's a strenuous physical activity. So it's, going to, it's not just going to distract you, but it's going to harness all the energies that you were previously putting into this habitual addiction it's going to harness them and put them into a into an, it, it's another activity it's not your true nature but it's another activity that is that, that is healthy and beneficial so that would be an example on, on a more personal mm. uh, level of just not it's not the direct path it's it's interjecting a, a halfway step that 
takes our mind or body out of the old destructive process and replaces it with an, another more beneficial process, albeit an objective one, going for a run or whatever. And then when the energies begin to die down, then you can take the next step and go back to your true nature. Yeah, I, I feel like um, with my work, it's kind of, so what, one way I'm not, I don't want to become overly identified with one particular way of pointing Absolutely. people to true nature. Yeah. I've been yeah. in other spiritual explorations and what I've found is my own way, firstly, and whether you see it the same way or not, I've seen helping people see the relationship between thought and experience has been massively beneficial in my practice. It's yeah. woken people up. Now, the same as what happened with me, I knew that I wasn't my story. They start to see that every time they're having this level of thinking about something, they're fearing the future, they're feeling guilty about the past, or they're obsessed with something in the present. You know, it's kind of like they see the role of thought in that experience as I did. Now, I knew that I wasn't my story. You know, it's kind of like, and that's when I found, I, but I didn't know who I was. I'd never asked the question, who am I? Yeah. So that's when I found one of your videos um, called going to the heart of an emotion where you did an investigation with somebody into the eye that was suffering. Yeah. And perhaps about two years after my initial experience, I'd watched that video and I had another, whatever the word is for it, a realization, yeah. you know, um, where I thought, wow, like I don't exist. You know, there's no me in there. You know, there's no real thing called Jason. I'd never asked that question. Who am yeah. I? You know, and it took me on a, that's what brought me here to these explorations because I just had that feeling that that has to be true. You yeah. know, it's kind of like I can't see that. Yeah, but but in your case, the the, um, the recognition that you had previously had, I'm I'm not defined by my story. That that may have been a, a necessary prelude to mm. this deeper understanding. And you and you're quite right that um, it's very helpful to understand it, what we are not. So that the fact, oh yes, of course, I, I'm, I'm not my thoughts because my thoughts come and go, but I always remain. I, in between two thoughts, for instance, I, I remain. I'm not my emotions because if I was if I was my emotion of sadness, then when the emotion of sadness leaves, I would feel a bit of me going with it. But that's not the case. All of me remains behind. So it, this this recognition of what we are not is is a very good prelude. Or preparation to the recognition of what we are. So just recognizing I'm not my thoughts, I'm not my feelings, I'm not my sensations, I'm not my activities or relationships, that's, that's not yet the recognition of our true nature. But it's a very good preparation for it. Mm. And with some of your people, you, you, you may take several weeks doing that before, yeah. before you even mention uh, uh, who are you really, yeah. what is it that is aware of your experience. Here, it's a very refined um, group of people I asked that I start with that question on day one but that's because everyone here have, they've done their homework they've, they've been on a, a path for some time but you're in a different situation people are coming to you for, for therapy so you may need to spend much longer time just just expressing just exploring the fact that you, your story is not really who you are it doesn't define you it's what happened to you mm. but it's not who you really are yeah and then therapy, if any, comes later in the process. Well, that's part of the therapy. That, that, that's that's, that's, it, that's yeah. the early stages of it. And then it goes deeper if someone stays with you and, and they're receptive and responsive to that. Then you can 
you can ask them after several times, okay, we discovered last week that you're not your... Uh, we discovered six weeks ago you're not your thoughts. We discovered five weeks ago you're not your feelings. You discovered four weeks ago you're not your sensation. And, and it's not literally like this, but yeah. I'm making a kind of schema out of it. So you do it, and then, and then, you know, on your sixth session you say, okay, we've, we've been discussing for the last several weeks what you're not. So what are you? When all of these things have been removed from you, your thoughts, your, what remains? Ah, then you're on the direct path. What remains when everything that can be removed from you is removed from you? Well, I do that on day one here mm. because I'm with, with a very mature group of people. But people coming to you for therapy are probably not um, so, so well prepared. So you start more slowly. Have you noticed that your, your story doesn't define you? It's just a story made out of thoughts. It's mm. not really who you are. You just go very slowly. And, you, and it's different with every person. Yeah, I think like one of the questions I had written down and it was really about the body and trauma and the, the sort of, I listened to a video of yours about trauma where you talked about residue of the body after discovery of true nature and that's kind of why my whole process of working with people is kind of in some way or another, you know, identifying with what you're not, identifying with who you are and then what's left over after that because I feel like if you don't go about it that way, people want to find labels for themselves and so on because they've never understood who they are or that they're not their story. They're very susceptible to picking up concepts and, and wallpapering it onto themselves. So um, with your talk about residue and stuff, it kind of fits for me as well with my personal experience with trauma, you know, that after my discovery of true nature, I thought, wow, everything's perfect now. And it probably has been pretty good, you know, like... I don't know what percentage you put on it, but it's quite high that I live a life of joy a lot of the time and contentment and things don't bother me so much and, you know, I feel mostly free. But I've certainly noticed in more recent times this twisting contraction sensations of the body in response to external stimulus, you know. And, and on the video that I talked about, you said that, you know, like after people have discovered their true nature... And I presume by that you mean had a real experience where they've seen on a deep level that it's not them, you know, that they've had a palpable feeling level experience change of life. That then there are still, um, from early childhood experiences as an example, you know, like um, contractions of the autonomic nervous system in response to circumstances and so on. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because... I feel like in my therapy world, there's two very split camps between somatic and the mind-based spiritual explorations. And the somatic people say, don't listen to the mind spiritual stuff because it completely misses the body. And the mind-based stuff doesn't mention the body so much, you know, and, and I feel like there's this, I'm not certain, you know, it's kind of like, does it, do you see it as that there's, something really held in the body or is it is it you said yesterday one thing you said just before um hand it over to you you said that um something about can, i can't paraphrase you very well but you said something about um the contractions of the body are stuck thoughts stuck beliefs and i was curious in, in the mind that's what you said in uh, yesterday at some point and i wrote it down actually but um yeah. i don't have it with me Yes, I think we're all familiar with the experience of um, experiencing fear and feeling tension in the chest. 
Uh, there's a very close correlation between our, um, our feelings and the body. To, to separate them, it's almost impossible to talk of feelings divorced from, from the body. We feel particularly the chest area, the throat area, the belly area. The, the, so the, the body is deeply connected. It's the, it's the storehouse of, of feelings. And th- this... Um, the, the recognition of the uh, essential nature of our self doesn't just have an effect on the way we think. It has an effect on our feelings. And in time, it has an effect on our um, activities and relationships. So, um, yes, that there there is some some work to be done, or either as we are recognizing our true nature, or when we've recognized our true nature, to to um, to realign the felt sense of the body with this new understanding, and that involves very often. Um, Allowing some of these buried feelings to be exposed and and dissolved. That that's not a prerequisite to recognizing our true nature. But if we don't um, align the way we feel the body with this new understanding, then there's going to be a discrepancy between our understanding and the way we think, feel, act, relate, and so on. So. So yes, it's certainly in, in in my approach. There's a there's there's a, um, a process that we that, that we engage after this recognition, whereby we we, we allow them the uh, in the Vedantic tradition they're called samskaras, the the hidden layers of the of the mind which are stored as feelings in the body to to be exposed and and dissolved. But to be clear, you're saying that it, it is created via the mind and felt in the body. Is that what you're saying? That it's stored response to... Let's take my trauma, for example. My dad was killed. The, he was killed in an accident. The police came to the door. And um, so many things that I've discovered over time, you know, it's kind of like my um, response to playfulness as one. You know, my, my partner, when she's playful with me, I kind of have this frozen effect, you know, and I don't yeah. know what to do with her, you yeah. know, and it's yeah. that. So that was a hugely traumatic experience for you early on in your life that that, that had an effect on your on your body. Your body tensed up mm. in relation, in response to that trauma. And long after you came to terms with the fact that your father had died, that, that the trauma is still stored in the body, and as exactly as you've just said, it still affects your relationships, or your partner is playful with you, and it triggers this subliminal layer of feelings that you're not normally in touch with. But it's just enough for your partner to tease you, or something like that, and it causes this this contraction. That's because of a of a, a, a buried layer of feelings in you that has yet to be completely exposed and dissolved. Yeah. And what do you, what do you, so what is it? What do you say to release that, to be with that, to get more in touch with that, to get connected well, to it? Well, Jason, those are really them. They're the they're, these are the yoga meditations that we do in our in in our sessions. So it, it's um. It's not something I can really give a verbal answer to because it's it, you have to. It's an experiential exploration of the body because mm. ju- just talking about it and describing it is it doesn't have any effect on our on our feelings. So it's an actual. It, it, it involves an actual 
um, exploration of the felt sense of the body. We, we, you, you, you've, you've, um, you, you've been, you've listened to some of these meditations where we, we feel ourselves as the open, empty space of awareness, and we feel the body as a, a little knot of sensation, it, suspended in that space, and then we permeate the density of the sensation with the emptiness of the space. This kind of, these kind of um, exercises that that help to um, expose these 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 layers and gradually allow them to bubble up into the light of awareness and in time dissolve. Yeah. Thank you. This so, yeah. This conversation was really just about what I call bridge. There's no gap, right? But bridging the gap, the apparent gap between the people that I work with and really yes. what you teach. Well, you know? you, you, you're right. Jason, there is a sort of gap. You're right, it's not a real gap, it's a, it's a continuum, it's a spectrum, but I, in a way I'm on one end of the spectrum and you're on the other. I'm, I'm in, in, in this sense, I only mean that in this sense, that, that I'm dealing with people who have coming to me specifically because they've many people have either spent years in therapy and or several years on a spiritual path and they're coming to me for the kind of the final furlong, the direct path. So we, here we just dive straight in in the first five minutes, usually, mm-hmm. where people are coming to you, they've got absolutely no interest very often in spiritual matters, or, but they're suffering terribly. And their, their suffering has caused them a, very often a, a deep habit which has turned into an addiction. Uh, they're not even struggling with the original cause of their suffering now. They're struggling with, the, with managing the addiction. So you're dealing with, with um, essentially... Of course, everyone is the same, but you're dealing with people at a different stage of their life. So the, the, the approach that I have is, is different from the approach that you have. They can both be informed by the same understanding, but we both have to tailor our understanding differently. And I'm tending to get people at different stages of their life than, than you are. Mm. So the methods we might use, although informed by the same understanding, would be, would be different. And also, I, I'm dealing most of the time with large numbers of people, so I'm speaking generally to people, and only when I have individual conversations do I tailor what I'm saying specifically to an individual, whereas you, if I understand you right, and most of the time you're dealing with individuals, so you have to start off tailoring the understanding specifically, case by case, to, to the person, depending on the nature of their addiction, the nature of their suffering, and so on. Yeah. So yes, there's a... It, it's the same. It, it's a spectrum, but we're at, at two different ends of the of the spectrum. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to do this conversation because I feel like this is the most important thing people could know, and it's just about how to uh, how to bridge that gap for me, you know, and yes. bring people more into that rather than giving them further pathologies, labels, ideas yes. about themselves, yeah. but really yeah. helping them see. Because for me, in 40 years of being in the system, you know, the psychiatric system and all the other stuff that I was in for that time, nothing really helped me, you know, and that's why when I found this, it really noticeably changed my life. But it's beautiful that you, as a result of your own experience, you're trying to find more effective pathways for people in the condition that you were were once in, and and you can't do it like I do it, just by saying to someone in the first five minutes, what is it that is aware of your experience? You, You may have to take six intermediary steps with them yeah. but that's the beauty of the process it's creative you have to be spontaneous and creative with everybody that comes to you not ask them on, on, on day one are you aware but 
tell me about your suffering. And, yeah. and then at some point they'll say, oh, I was sitting on a grassy slope outside LA and I had this experience. Ah, oh, that's the little chink. That's the place to go. Follow that. Yeah. And then you start the conversation and it all begins to unroll. Awesome. I think we've come to cool. a, an organic well, end. That's a, a, a natural, natural place to end. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy talking with you. I wish Thank you the very best. Thank you.